Remain standing, if you would, please. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Feel free to sit down if you're tired, but if you're not, go ahead and uh, remain standing. Um, Chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, starting in verse 23, reading through verse 33. This is the word of the Lord. It has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. It has no errors in the original languages in which it was given. And we have the promise in faithful translations, such as the one from which I'm reading, that it remains to us the authoritative word of God. Reverently listen now. Starting in verse 23. Matthew 22. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies, having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brothers, to his brother, rather. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Amen. Be seated, please. And pray with me. Well, Lord, your teaching is astonishing. Everything you say is astonishing in that you, the God of the universe, who created all things and fills the cosmos with your presence, you speak to us, sinful dust. Uh, You did so through the patriarchs, through the prophets, through the apostles, and you continue to do so now through your word read and preached. And Lord, your, your word and its contents is unfathomably deep. It is indeed astonishing. Lord, would you please help us to glean some of what you are saying in this passage that we might better understand who you are, 
uh, that we might better understand what you have done and what you will do for us in the future. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um, in the children's catechism, and I know um, many of you children, if not all of you children, um, have in Miss Lisa's class, uh, in times past, uh, studied and memorized uh, the children's catechism, because my daughters have done so. And in the children's catechism, there is a very important question that is asked in uh, question 18 about how God made Adam and Eve. Uh, perhaps you remember it. The question was, what did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? And the answer is, he gave them souls that could never die. Some of you children remember that, right? It then, that question is then followed by a question which is very personal and is directed at you, uh, the, the reader or the memorizer of the question. Uh, it's a very personal question, question 19 is, and that is, it asks, have you a soul as well as a body? And the answer is, yes, I have a soul that can never die. I have a soul that can never die. But you know, kids, uh, there are a lot of people <clears throat> who don't believe this. Even a lot of people who go to church who don't believe that they have a soul <clears throat> that will never die. They say things like this, well, I can see and touch a body. I can believe a body is real because I can see it and I can touch it. But I can't see or touch or measure a soul. Therefore, I don't believe that I have a soul because I can't see it, touch it, or measure it. It's not there if I can't sense it. That's what a lot of people will say when they hear something like this. Do you have a soul as well as a body? Yes, I have a soul that can never die. No, I don't. I can't see a soul. These types of people are what is are sometimes referred to as materialists. Now, don't worry about that question. Just know that people who have to say, prove it to me, let me see it with my eyes before I believe it, those are materialists, okay? I'm going to use that word periodically through this sermon, so you children need to remember that, that that's what I'm talking about, is people who demand proof that they can see or touch uh, or measure to prove that something exists, okay? Well, the very next question in the children's catechism, question 20, is this. How do you know that you have a soul? Because you can't see it, right? You can't measure it. You can't uh, weigh it or touch it or hear it. How do you know that you have a soul? The uh, framers of this question ask. And the answer is, in question 20, is because the Bible tells me. So, because the Bible tells me so. The Bible is God's word, right? God is speaking in the Bible. And so it's, you could actually say, I know I have a soul because God tells me so in his word, the Bible. And you see, this is the difference. One of the differences, one of the huge differences between an unbeliever, which is what a, materi- a materialist is an unbeliever necessarily. Uh, because he doesn't believe in God, because I can't see God, touch God, or hear God, is what he would say. 
Um, and this is the big difference between a, an unbeliever and a Christian, because you see, a Christian believes in God. He can't see him. Uh, most of us haven't heard him. Actually, none of us today have. Uh, in the Old Testament, they did at times, in the New Testament as well. But uh, those times have passed. But uh, a Christian believes in God. He believes that he has, has a soul that he can't see or measure. He believes that both his body and his soul will live forever, ever. He believes all those things, or she does. And we do so because these things have been told to us by God in his word. We've been told that these things are true. Okay? But the materialist only believes in what he can see, hear, touch, taste, or measure. And so he doesn't believe any of what we believe that I've just mentioned. He thinks it's all nonsense, foolishness. The truth is, he's the fool. Well, Jesus is talking here in this... um, in this passage that I just read a few moments ago, Jesus is talking here with men who do not believe they have a soul that will live forever. They uh, do not believe, or and they also don't believe that their bodies will be raised from the dead. Why don't they believe these things? Because they've never seen it happen. They've never seen a soul. They've never seen a resurrection of a body before. Um, Actually, they might have if they'd been around for a couple of Jesus' miracles, but uh, they probably dismissed those as a trick. Anyway, they don't believe these things, and they don't believe these things despite what the Old Testament, <clears throat> Testament scriptures, which they profess to believe or consider valid still, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch, in spite of what that book teaches, they didn't believe uh, there were, there, that they had a soul, they didn't believe that their bodies would be raised. And so it's important that you know that by way of background, children, as we proceed through this discussion, actually this debate, uh, argument uh, that Jesus is having with, um, maybe it's not an argument, it's a lecture, uh, a firm one from our Lord to them. Anyway, it's still Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Um, much of the Gospels covers that last week of Jesus' life, as we know, especially John's Gospel, but also a lot of Matthew's Gospel. And still Tuesday of Passion Week, the Jewish leaders earlier on in the day initiated a series of conversations uh, designed to trip Jesus up um, so that they could find an opportunity to uh, get him out of their hair by getting him arrested and uh, imprisoned or killed or what have you. Um, in a previous conversation that a group of religious leaders had with Jesus, and spe- this group that I'm talking about now is the Pharisees and the Herodians, um, in that previous conversation that is recorded in verses 15 to 22 that we looked at last week, the Pharisees and the Herodians asked Jesus about whether it was right to pay taxes for a Jew to pay taxes to Caesar. And you recall from that passage that what Jesus does is he answers their question by exposing their own hypocrisy. Because the coin that he asked them to, uh, to, uh, bring forth that belonged to Caesar's, uh, that, that, uh, that, that they were used to pay their tax, they pulled it out of their own pocket almost certainly and handed it to him. Um, and he said, you're using this money that belongs to Caesar. And by using your, his money, 
you have put yourself under obligation to Caesar to give back to Caesar his money at some point in the form of taxes and to give other things back as well that Caesar had provided uh, for them. Uh, and so he, uh, um, he, he basically um, uh, just destroys the Pharisees' attempts to under, and the Herodians' attempts to undermine him with that question and to get either the Roman authorities or the people to turn against him. So the, the Sadducees now are up, and it's their turn to try to discredit uh, Jesus in the eyes of the people and the authorities. And so they proceed here. And what they do is they decide to use a teaching of Jesus that they strongly disagree with, um, that is the teach, Jesus' teaching that people will be raised bodily from the dead one day, they bring up this teaching and they use it to try to trip him up um, with their argument. Two principal points that I'm going to be making from this passage uh, that are uh, taught in this passage. The first is this. Materialist, the materialist, denies the supernatural and your eternal existence. And mine, of course, too. The materialist denies the supernatural and your our eternal existence. But this passage also teaches that Christ proves the supernatural and our eternal existence. So first, the materialist denies the supernatural and our material existence. What is a materialist? I've already kind of given you pretty good idea in my illustration with the kids, but um, a, belie- a, a materialist believes in the reality, only in the reality of things that he can sense with his senses, that he can see, touch, hear, taste, smell, what have you. Those are the only things he believes, uh, the orthodox materialist, I'll put it that way, uh, is real. And the criteria of, so the criteria of all of his judgments um, concerning what is real and what is not real is what he can sense and, I would add, comprehend with his own mind, that he can understand with his own mind. He explains everything on the basis of what he can observe and conclusions that he can draw from that observation. There's no place in the materialist's thinking for a supreme creator who made all things and who is ontologically superior, that is, in his being, to the creation that he has made. He has no place for such a creator. Uh, He can have a god, perhaps, but it's not that god who is supremely in charge and who created all things and who works in his creation. Uh, He believes in a uh, deist god if he believes in any god at all. And the materialist lives in what we'll call a closed universe, And it's his universe, one of his own mental construction, a construct of his own. And and a personal creator of all things, who governs all things, plays no part in his universe. Again, a god of sorts might, but it's not the true god. Okay, The Sadducees, what I'm finally getting around to here, is the Sadducees were essentially materialists. They were religious liberals. We have religious liberals in our day. Uh, in such denominations as the United Church of Christ, which is way different from the Churches of Christ, by the way. Um, but we have liberal denominations in our day who have apostatized and who, from whom uh, Jesus has undoubtedly removed his lampstand and mass, 
uh, that's one uh, good example of where um, that is the case. Uh, but these were religious liberals who were made up mostly of the priestly class of the day, the priests who uh, worked in the and served in the temple uh, complex. And in addition to the priestly class, leading lay families also were a part of um, the, uh, the uh, Sadducean sect, if you will. And the Sadducees believed, as I already mentioned a moment ago, only in the Torah, that only the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that only those five books of the Old Testament were valid, if you will, permanently. So they discounted the writings of the prophets uh, and, uh, and uh, other uh, books in the earth. Types of material found in the uh, in the Old Testament as not being truly valid. Only the first five books did they recognize, and yet, in spite of believing supposedly the Torah, they denied, as I've already said, the reality of the soul because they were materialists. They denied the reality of the soul. They denied the reality of the afterlife. They denied the reality of the resurrection of the body. They denied the reality of rewards and punishments in eternity because there is no eternity. There is no afterlife, according to them. And the reason for their belief in these, or lack of belief in these things, is because none of these things that I just mentioned are apprehendable by their senses. And so it didn't exist if they, if they, who were the supreme judge of all things, according to them, didn't see it or understand it, or grasp it. They denied God's sovereignty, and they believed that man had perfect freedom to choose between right and wrong, good and evil. Does that sound a little familiar? There's some people in churches today that hold that very belief, that Sadducean belief, even in evangelical churches, not necessarily just liberal churches. And the Sadducees... So they denied God's sovereignty over all things. They believed in freedom of choice, perfect freedom of choice. They believed in a God of sorts who was not personally or supernaturally involved in the affairs of men, the God of the deist, closer to the the God of deism. And because they were unbelieving materialists, the Sadducees hated any and all manifestations of the true God's presence or power And they hated any talk of God's claims on their lives. And they hated any talk of grace. You don't need grace. God doesn't have a claim on me. Those are all tricks. Those uh, miracles that uh, Jesus claims are miracles, that that his followers claims are miracles happen. They're all tricks. Because their God didn't do those things. And... They th- they, uh, that's the only God they acknowledge. And this is why, like I've already indicated, this is why Christ's presence, God the Son, enfleshed, this is why Jesus' presence, his miracles, his teachings, were so repugnant to these men. That and the fact that he called them out on their hypocrisy all the time. And this is why, by the way, why the presence, the miracles, the teachings of Jesus are so repugnant to materialists in our day as well. Because they don't like the God described here. 
They refuse to believe in this, the triune God um, of the Bible, who uh, is, as he's described therein, all-powerful, sovereign over all things, all-wise, everywhere present, eternal, unchangeable, infinitely holy, infinitely just, infinitely loving and gracious and merciful to those whom he wills to be loving and mercifully, merciful and just toward. They don't like, they don't want, they don't believe, they choose not to believe in that God. Um, and Jesus was talked all about that God because he was that God and is that God. Well, the attitude of the Sadducees in their materialism uh, is evident in uh, verse 23. They approach Jesus uh, with the same hypocrisy and insincerity uh, that the uh, Pharisees and the uh, Herodians did in the previous conversation recorded in this chapter. They are uh, not interested in truth. They have no interest in it whatsoever. They don't want to hear what Jesus has to say uh, so that they might be enlightened. No. Um, we are told right up front in verse 23 by Matthew that uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. He makes that right at the front end of this description of this event. And he's telling us that for a reason, to point out to the fact, to point to their utter hypocrisy. Because notice how they speak to Jesus. They don't say right up front, we don't believe in the resurrection. What they say is, in verse eight twenty-eight, after they've told their little tale, in the resurrection, as if they believed it. Well, at least they say it, um, they're saying it mockingly, of course, uh, because they know Jesus knows who they are and what they believe. But at any rate, they hated Jesus. Their only goal is to make him look like a fool in the eyes of the people and to get him in trouble with the authorities so that they could, again, render him um, harmless by getting rid of him. Harmless, that is, to them. They hated him. And they hated him because of his moral purity, which was in stark contrast with their wickedness uh, and shone a light on the evil of their own hearts. They hated him because um, uh, because of his uh, uh, attacks on their cherished assumptions about uh, life and about uh, about God. And they hated him for calling them out on their worldliness or for their worldliness. They hated him. And if you're listening to me this morning and you haven't trusted in the Jesus of the Bible who is 100% God, 100% man, and the only way to God, and it's only through faith that you lay hold of Jesus in a way that saves you, if you don't believe in that Jesus, aren't trusting in him, you hate Jesus. You may be saying to yourself, you're crazy. I don't hate Jesus. I admire Jesus. He had a lot of good things to say. No, you do hate Jesus, whether you know it or not. Because Jesus says in his word, he who is not with me is against me. You're against Jesus. If you're not with him, if you don't, aren't one of his, um, one of those who believes in him, one of his children, then you are against him, which means you are his enemy, which means you hate him. If you could, you would, you would uh, 
grab him and pull him off his throne on which he sits, not a literal throne, but his place of rule in heaven. You would do that if you're not a Christian now. If you have not been humbled before God by the majesty of God and the the awfulness of your sin, if you haven't understood how awful your sin is and haven't seen Jesus as your only hope of being rescued from eternal damnation and haven't trusted in him alone to rescue you from that wrath of God and to rule over your life, then you hate him just as much as the Sadducees did. It may not be as obvious as it was in their case, but you do. And you need a new heart, and only God can give it to you, that you might believe on the Lord Jesus as your only hope of reconciliation with God. So you need to listen carefully as I continue. So these Sadducees, materialists, um, had a strategy that they employed to trip, try to trip Jesus up. They never succeeded in that, of course. But um, what they thought was, they, they, they thought, we have, a, we have an argument that we're going to we're going to present to Jesus. They thought they had an argument against the resurrection, the doctrine that Jesus regularly taught, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, which is uh, cited for us in part here in verse uh, 24. I'll just, rather than turning to the Deuteronomy passage, I'll just reread verse 24. So, on the, on the same day, some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher... Moses said, and then the verse, If a man dies, having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother, meaning his dead brother. This law that was found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and quoted here by Jesus, what it did was it made sure that every household in Israel had an heir. And the reason that's important, that every household in Israel had an heir, uh, because remember, people in Israel lived on land that they possessed as part of their inheritance. And this is important that there be an heir for every parcel of land within Israel because the blessings promised in the Mosaic Covenant to those who were in that covenant, the Mosaic administration of the one covenant of grace, those blessings were bound up with possession of the land within the borders of Israel. The land typified the blessings and played a role in the uh, provision of the blessings through the type that it uh, was. And what this law found in Deuteronomy, the Sadducees, quote, did was it ensured that property, that land within Israel remained in Jewish hands when people died. It didn't get um, divested to uh, some pagan creditor or something like that, some uh, Gentile. And that's what this law uh, was designed to do. And if a man died and had not produced an heir, a male heir, then his single brother or next of kin, if they didn't have a single brother, was obliged by this law, cited by the Sadducees, to marry the dead man's widow, childless widow, I should say. 
That's what the law essentially required. And so the firstborn son from this second union of the dead man's brother to the dead man's widow, the firstborn son from that union would then inherit the dead man's property. This is called the Leverite Law. And this is exactly what Boaz did. You recall the story of the account of Boaz uh, and Ruth. And Boaz, when he married Ruth, that's what, what happened. Uh, they produced a son who inherited uh, Naomi's uh, dead husband's uh, property and estate, including the land that he owned. It went to um, the boy, to Obed. who had Boaz as his father, passing through Naomi, and uh, passing through, rather, through um, uh, Ruth. There we go. Anyway, so these men, these um, enemies of Jesus, fabricate a tall tale using that, uh, that Leverite law quoted in Deuteronomy as a springboard they fabricate a tall tale for Jesus, which they represent as having truly happened, having really occurred. And again, verse we'll read it, 25 through 28. Now, there were, in other words, this happened, Jesus, is kind of what they're saying about it. There were seven brothers with us. Again, making it, trying to make it real. Uh, it's quite evident uh, that it's, uh, it's uh, hypothetical, but they represented Israel. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. And having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so also the second, meaning the second died, and left his offspring to his brother. And the third, down through to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. And then they make this statement, in the resurrection, or question, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven, meaning the seven husbands, shall she be? For they all had her as wife. They think they have trapped Jesus. Their point is, in that little story that I just read, is that all seven husbands can't have this one woman, have this one woman as wife. And yet they were all married to her. And if she had had a child with the last husband, the seventh husband that she married, the hypothetical woman, if she had had a child with the last husband, it would make sense that he would be the husband that would be recognized in the resurrected state that Jesus uh, talks about, uh, which they don't believe in. But she doesn't have a child, the seventh husband. Uh, she doesn't produce a child with the seventh husband. She dies childless. So there's no child. So... That doesn't mean necessarily that the seventh husband is going to be the right husband in the final, in the final place uh, that Jesus believes that they don't believe in. They're trying to use this theology against him, you see. Since God, in Deuteronomy 25.5, requires a dead man's nearest unmarried kinsman to marry the dead man's childless widow for the purpose of raising up a male heir, they say, Jesus, there can be no resurrection. Because of that law. Why do they say that? Because if the dead are raised, as you, Jesus, claim, this widow that we've just described to you, who has married multiple husbands, uh, multiple times, rather, 
She will have multiple husbands in the afterlife, which is an utter absurdity. By the way, that points to the right teaching of theirs that polygamy is wrong. Uh, they, They did get that one right, the Sadducees. So they conclude, given what Deuteronomy 25 says, says Jesus, there can be no resurrection in the afterlife. Because she had seven husbands here. And she can't have seven husbands. You see, what they did was, they were assuming that there, if there is an afterlife, as Jesus believed, and they didn't, marital bonds must continue there as they were on earth. That's the assumption they are making. So that's their strategy, to try to trip Jesus up, uh, to turn the crowds against him, and to turn the authorities against him as well. These are evil men, religious leaders. Again, I stress that as one myself, religious leaders, there are lots of evil religious leaders. Satan is alive and well in the church and in the ministry. So be careful. Secondly, not only in this passage do we see that materialist denying the supernatural and our eternal existence, but we also see Jesus proving, if you will, through argumentation, the supernatural and our eternal existence. He indicts his opponents right after they give them this hogwash story that they made up and the uh, supposed text in Deuteronomy that makes this story, uh, lends weight to this story and uh, supposedly undoes Jesus' teaching or undermines Jesus' teaching of the resurrection, Jesus comes back immediately and says, you are mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. That's a summary of what he is, uh, of how they are mistaken, which we're going to unpack here in the last uh, few minutes of the message. They were mistaken, sorely mistaken, in their conception of who God was and his character and his attributes, and they were sorely mistaken in their attitude toward his word and their understanding of his word, the scriptures that he had given, given including the first five books. And these men, like all ungodly materialists, uh, and all materialists are ungodly, are unbelieving, these men uh, hadn't been led astray by other people. They had been led astray by their own darkened, foolish hearts. That's how they got to this theology, was their own wickedness that promoted it within their minds. They hadn't taken into consideration, as Jesus points out, God's immense power. They didn't think God had the power to raise dead, rotting flesh, decomposed flesh that had turned to dust. They didn't think God had the power to do that and to give life to such dead material. And they had also willfully ignored the word of God, including the Pentateuch, that they supposedly 
saw as valid still. They willfully ignored that. Uh, it's teaching that God did indeed intend to reunite the bodies of the dead with their souls, of dead believers and also of the damned as well, by the way. He says, you're just wrong. You are plain wrong. And then he continues to provide evidence in support of this indictment that is found summarized in verse 29. He goes on in verse 30, and he tells them, again, first of all, you have failed to grasp the enormity of God's power. He says, in effect, you don't believe in the resurrection, you Sadducees, because you don't understand how awesome God is. And you don't understand the awesome power that he exerts because he's the God of the Bible when he raises people from the dead and reconstitutes their bodies even though it has turned to dust and become fertilizer and scattered itself all over the globe. You don't understand how powerful God is, he's saying. And the reason they didn't understand is, again, because they lived in a closed universe, as I said earlier. They viewed the afterlife only in terms of their own limited experience and understanding, which is to say they didn't see any any, any evidence of any afterlife. And so they refused to the, acknowledge the existence of something they couldn't comprehend or observe. Damned fools they were. You see, in order to believe that your body will be raised from the dead if you die before Jesus returns, in order to believe that, you have got to grasp how powerful God is. God is going to exert in your body and mine the same power that he displayed when he raised Jesus from the dead. Over in Ephesians 1, chapter 18, Paul speaks of this immense power that God has that was evident in the resurrection of Christ. He says, starting in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness, listen, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These things are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. He's using all these synonyms to describe how incredibly powerful God is. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but in the one to come. That power that he used to raise Jesus is power that he will one day exert to raise you and me if we die before Jesus returns in glory. This is evident from what Paul says over in Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, we believers, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Not interesting. We wait from heaven. We wait from heaven eagerly for a Savior. For our citizenship is now in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, Jesus' glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, including death. 
you see. That's the power that he's going to use to raise you and me from the dead if we die before he returns. And nothing can prevent God from doing what he wants to do, and he wants to raise you and me bodily. By the way, this is an aside, but it's an important one. This is why choosing to be buried rather than to be cremated is a way uh, is important because it's a way for you and me to affirm that we believe this doctrine of the resurrection. I'm not going to destroy my body, even though it's going to rot. I'm not going to give instructions to destroy my body uh, with fire, which, by the way, calls up notions of hell, does it not? Uh, I'm not going to do that because of, it's a bad picture. Me burning, A, and destroying my body, which I believe God wishes to raise one day. Burial was the way that was commended to believers down through the ages in Scripture. It's the way you should be have your, arranged to have your remains uh, taken care of in the end. Cremation's cheaper, but it's wrong. Anyway, back to the point. So Jesus says that the believer's resurrected state um, is qualitatively different from our present state. He says this in verse 30. Look at verse 30 with me. He says to them, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like, notice the word like, not are angels in heaven, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus says that things are way different in heaven than they are here on earth. And that's one of the problems that these Sadducees had with what they were, the argument they were presenting to Jesus. What's the difference? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that this mortal body will put, will have put on in, in the, in the final day immortality. We will be immortal. Though we are, our bodies are now mortal, they will be immortal when we, uh, uh, are raised. And that is the sense, by the way, the immortality, the sense in which we are like the angels. We don't become angels. A lot of people believe that, and it's just simply not true. But we will become immortal like the angels. That is true. Um, and we have earthly bodies now, the earthly bodies that we have. They, uh, we will one day have heavenly bodies, Paul tells us also in 1 Corinthians 15. Ones which, uh, bodies which will resemble this one. I hope it's one resembles what I look like in my youth. Um, at any rate, they'll resemble this one, yet they'll be powerfully transformed. They'll be like Christ's body. Remember, Christ appeared in the room that was locked after, the, after uh, his death and resurrection. He, did, he didn't bother with the door. He just passed right through the wall, bodily. We're going to be like that. Paul says elsewhere in, in um, First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. At any rate... Um, and there are two other things that this passage points out uh, about the uh, resurrected existence when our body and soul are brought together as believers, by the way. There are two other things that he alludes to here, and that is that since we will be immortal, as Paul uh, teaches, there will no longer be a need to reproduce, because death will be done away with. 
there will no longer be a need for children, if you will. And while marriage is indeed a great blessing that God uses to provide us with companionship and fulfillment in this life, there will be no need for, nor will we miss, hard to believe for some of us, but nor will we miss it. There will be no need for marriage uh, in the afterlife. Because as we commune with Christ and as we commune with one another uh, in heaven, that communion will be of a such magnificent quality. The relating that we have with one another and with Christ will be of such wonder and and such a thrill that there will be it will far surpass anything that we've had in this life, including the the joys of marriage. So don't be sad about that. We can be sad for a few moments, but don't be don't be sad about that long term because it's going to be even better than marriage is a good marriage in this life. Well, so he says, you don't get the power of God and what God can do in spite of what your minds can't comprehend. And then he says, there's one other thing you don't understand. He demonstrates to them, you don't understand your own scriptures. And he says this in verses uh, 31 and 32. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, you have you not read... You religious leaders, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? And then Jesus comments, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, he could have, Jesus could have used a number of Old Testament passages to prove the doctrine of the resurrection. He could have used Job chapter 19, verses I think it's 25 and 26. He could have used uh, Psalm 16, that well-known passage that's cited uh, in the New Testament by Peter, uh, proving Jesus' resurrection. He could have used Daniel 12, uh, verse 2, I think it is. All those passages, and several others actually, that could be brought to bear, but... What he does is he goes to Exodus. He goes to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, in the account of Moses speaking with, uh, being spoken to by God through the burning bush on Mount Sinai. He goes to that passage, which is in which book? It's in the second book of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which these men revered as still being valid and presumably authoritative. Uh, and he quotes from Exodus 3, 6. This passage, God speaking and saying these words found in verse 32 in our text in that uh, Exodus 3 account. The burning bush, you see, two things are valid for, are important for the point Jesus is trying to make from that, from that event. First is the bush itself and what it taught and also what the name that God gave identified himself as in that incident. So two things. The bush was burning, but remember, it wasn't burning up, was it? It was not consumed. The leaves were still there, the branches were still there, and they were not turning to ashes. Nothing was being done to the to the bush. You see, and what this did, this pointed to, it was designed to instruct Moses and us about God. God, the unconsumed bush, pointed to God's lack of dependence on anything. The fire didn't need fuel. You see that? It didn't need, fires need fuel, but that one didn't. God didn't need anything, you see. He's assay, is the fancy Latin term for it. Uh, his aseity. He, he is utterly self-sufficient unto himself. And the bush that was not burning 
even though it was engulfed in fire, pointed to God's aseity, that he is... Um, he is, doesn't depend upon anything. And then the name, I am, the, uh, the, the verb to be, uh, is used there. Uh, and what it was pointing to, the name, I am, not I was, not I will be, but I am. That, that's perpetually my name, God says to Moses, or implies to Moses. And what he's identifying there in, the, in his name is, his self, his self-existence, he exists unto himself. He's not dependent again on anything outside of himself to exist. And he's timeless. He's not, he doesn't have a past. He doesn't have a future. He is, he is forever present. He is eternal. Time it doesn't control him. He controls time. He works in it, but it doesn't in any way bind him or limit him in any way, shape, or form. And God, Jesus is saying here to these men, it is this God who said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There we go. I am that God. And note this. This is, this is the key to understanding why that's so important. Because God spoke those words to Moses hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead. See that? So he's saying to Moses, I am the patriarch's God. I am right now, Moses. I'm talking to you from this bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. And that, uh, and then he points out that such a God who is like that, who was Abraham and Isaac's God when Moses, when he was speaking to Moses, he can only be a God to people who are alive. Because of this very doctrine which is in their book that they should have seen. And since he uh, is uh, self-existent and is unbound by time, he time doesn't, God doesn't experience the passage of time because it's his creation. He's outside of it. Because he doesn't experience the passage of time, it also clearly implies that he does not change. He is unchanging. Since he's unchanging, that has implications. It means his covenant purposes do not change. It means, since he's unchangeable, that his relationships do not change. Think about that. His relationships that he establishes do not change. Or his intentions with respect to relationships that he has. And if this God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then he, in fact, in Jesus' day, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he still is in Jesus' day, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's still in our day, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and you know Elijah, and so on and so forth. He's not saying, I was their God. I am. And by the way... Uh, this is proof, Jesus is saying, this is proof that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he's talking to the Sadducees, were in heaven, and they were in heaven, and they were alive, and they were with God, and they were before God. Now, spiritually, 
bodies hadn't arrived yet. But they were spiritually alive. And I want to tell, this is, uh, this is quick, we're almost done, but this is a classic, ex- classic example of the importance of drawing conclusions from Scripture using good and necessary inference or deduction. This is an example, of a prime example of where God holds us responsible for knowing not just what the explicit statements of Scripture teach, but what is implied by what Scripture teaches. That's why, folks, you and I have got to be students of the Word. We've got to think and meditate on the Word. What are the, what are the ramifications of what Jesus or God is saying here in whatever passage you're in? Because you're responsible for that. I am, too. We all are. Good and necessary conf- uh, consequence or inference or deduction, all three words can be used, and that comes out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they were right. Kelvin said, so we know Jesus proved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are in heaven right now as I'm talking to you Sadducees. They're alive in their souls. And Kelvin makes this point, uh, and it's, it's true. He says, it's absurd to think of the life of the soul of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be, uh, uh, would be uh, specific to our situation. But he says, it's absurd to think of the life of the soul without the promise of a future life for the body as well. And the reason Calvin was saying that is because both body and soul, we were created that way. Genesis 2-7, we were created as a body that God breathed the soul, breathed life into, and that's what constitutes being human in, in, uh, in, in uh, its fullest and completest form, in its most glorious form. You've got to have the body reunited to the soul because of the way we were created and, uh, and because of what Scripture teaches elsewhere, that that's necessary for full uh, blessedness, for full and final blessedness. It has to come with the life of the soul. It needs to be have the body eventually reunited uh, with it. It's unnatural for the two to be apart. And he is essentially saying, in effect, to the Sadducees, you don't understand the scriptures because if you did understand them, you would understand who God is and what he is like and what his intentions are. And you don't have a clue. You don't realize that God is that unchanging God who is, the, who is speaking to Moses and is, is the God to whom you're accountable, that he's able to save his covenant people to the uttermost. He saves not only their souls, but he saves their bodies as well. And you don't get that because you don't see, you, your God is different. And you don't understand that because God is eternal and outside of time and timeless and yet works in time and created time and space for creatures to exist in and for him to have fellowship with those creatures. He was saying, you, don't, you essentially, this eternal God, who is the I Am, necessarily gives life to those who are in covenant with him. And that's only believers. He's going to raise the unbelievers' bodies as well. And they'll be reunited with their souls in hell. And their damnation will be more horrific. But he will reunite this eternal God, our bodies, with our souls if they are separated. Uh, and our blessedness will be even greater than it is for the saints who are right now in glory without their bodies. And so Christ proves through the scriptures the existence of the supernatural. And he does this by bringing 
you and me, face to face with the power of God through what is taught in his word and the testimony of the scriptures concerning the afterlife. Our God can handle this resurrection thing. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus alone to save you, you're going to have a resurrection. But if you die without Christ, not having trusted in him, your resurrection will, as I just indicated, be make your eternity even more horrific than it will be when you leave this world without your body. Why is that? You think, you might say to yourself, why is God so cruel? Why does he create this thing hell? He does it because he's just and he's holy. And you and I are wicked. We are conceived that way. And we are born that way. And we hate God. And a just God must punish spiritual criminals. And that's what hell is, the place of divine punishment. And I deserve it. All of us here deserve it. And you deserve it who are watching. Every man, woman, and child deserves the wrath of God in hell. But God is not only just, he's also gracious which means he is willing to bless and give the very opposite to somebody of what they actually deserve, what he or she deserves. And we deserve hell, but he wants to bless and give heaven to many, to all those who will flee to Jesus in faith as their only hope of being forgiven, of not experiencing the wrath of God uh, in the final day of judgment, and of bringing them home to heaven. And if you will believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, not just your fire insurance, but as the one who you commit to to rule over you from this day forward, you will be right with God when you die, and you will be resurrected to glory. Your body will be, and you will know bliss and happiness and joy that we cannot really fathom in this life. And it'll be yours. Not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it, but because God is gracious in Christ. May God give you the grace to believe on him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. It's a lot to take in. I know it's a lot to preach. Uh, but thank you, Lord, that uh, for what we learn from this passage about our, about our future, about uh, who you are, about what you expect from us in terms of what you hold us responsible for, um, about uh, the truths that, um, that are found in your word. We thank you that you have taught us much today. Would you please use these truths to make us better servants of yours? And would you please save any soul that is watching uh, that has not yet come to know Christ by faith alone? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.